And welcome to the new season, season six, episode one, alternatively known as episode 53 of the Page One podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco. And thanks for joining us at the Page One podcast. If this is your first episode, what the hell have you been doing? Go back and check out all the other great episodes we've got there. With have some... been at home for the last year. Exactly. You must have run out of other good podcasts to listen <laughs> yeah. to. There's no, we're done, we're done to the dregs now. Exactly. This is our time to shine. So, uh, yeah, do check it out. We've got some great authors and screenwriters and video game writers and comic writers there in the in the in the back catalogue, so please do check that out. Um, at the Page One Podcast, we like to speak to writers of all kinds, um, as I just said, uh, about their writing process, how they got into the industry, and chat to them about uh, their work and get as many hints and tips for writing as possible, because Tarek and I are also writers. I was going to say aspiring, but Tarek, you're no longer aspiring. There's no such thing as an aspiring writer, Marco. You're either a writer or you're not. Uh, true, true. Okay, let's go with that line. <laughs> um, uh, and we have a great writer and director on for this week. We have a very exciting guest. We are chatting with Alex Garland this week, who uh, you may know from his seminal debut novel, The Beach, mm-hmm. back in 1996, which was made into a pretty big movie by Danny Boyle. Yep. Uh, Alex went on to then uh, jump into the world of screenplays. He wrote the screenplay for 28 Days Later, uh, Sunshine, uh, Never Let Me Go, and Dread. Uh, and then after that, he then made a further jump. It's pretty much my dream career, really. Yeah, further jump into directing with Ex Machina, Annihilation, and most recently, Devs. Yeah, it's Dave's on, on uh, in the UK, it was on BBC Two, it's on iPlayer and I think in the US, FX. But yeah, it's a really, I have to say, I really enjoyed this chat with Alex because it's, we get really into depth about the writing process and about, you know, how he comes up with these projects and also hear about how he's moved from these different, through these different paths from novels to screenplays to directing. Um, so it's, there's a lot in there. Um, there's also for fans of video games because he has written on a video game as we discuss but we have a bit of chat about video games as well and in that chat uh, there are some spoilers for the last of us uh, part two, two. yes oh, so I'm one maybe as well maybe i'm one as well i'm not sure no i don't think so i think it's mainly part two but so if you are wanting to not know about those um you'll You'll hear us start to talk about it, and when we do, I would jump forward about five minutes at that point, so you, so, so you don't get spoiled. <laughs> definitely, games you do not want the ending spoiled. No, definitely not. Not many games you would say that about, but I think Last was Part Two. It, it's yeah, highly recommend playing it as as we discuss in the podcast. But um, yeah, it's a really great episode uh, to kick off this season. So I hope you enjoy it. We'll get straight into it after a quick advert for our writer's notebook which you can get from our website um, the link is in the podcast description and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest the blank page to some it's terrifying an obstacle to overcome but we prefer to think of it as an opportunity a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head so how to overcome that fear Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. 
But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realised it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Was that always an ambition? No, not at all. Um, uh, my dad was a cartoonist and I grew up around comic books and I drew a lot and I thought I'd be a cartoonist too. Um, and then sometime around my late teens, um, I also got really into backpacking because he was a cartoonist. A lot of his friends were journalists. And so I thought, um, there was, there was a sort of a career path that might exist, which was being a journalist, which is writing, mm -hmm. but, but sort of very loosely, I was thinking, oh, I love backpacking and, uh, um, maybe I could be a journalist. Maybe I could be a foreign correspondent. And so that was a sort of half-formed thought that arrived in my late teens. And in some sort of vague way, I sort of half-pursued it. So when I'd be backpacking, I sort of thought in some weird way, I'm looking for stories. Um, and I even sort of half-pretended to be a journalist. Mm -hmm. You know, I blagged a press card so I could go to some demonstration in Hong Kong and Manila and stuff like that. Um, which was a sort of fantasy role-playing version of being a journalist. And, and then at a certain point, I realized, um, I realized it wasn't for me in various ways, but one of them is I'm just not suited to writing nonfiction uh, mm -hmm. because I find it very constricting. I love reading it, but I find it very difficult to write. Um, so it's not a criticism of nonfiction. I adore nonfiction, but, uh, but, but if you feel duty bound to describe the thing as it happened, you, you, I found I was caveating and caveating and caveating everything I put yeah. down. And, and if you just invented it, but you based it on a kind of truth that got around that problem. And then I started writing about my backpacking, not as a kind of journalism, fake journalism, but as just thinking, no, no, this is fiction. And then that, that turned into my job. I was 24, mm -hmm. so I wrote, 
I wrote a book about basically about backpacking when I was 24 and that really started my writing life and was that what became the beach then was was... that 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 was yeah that was the beach there was a sort of aborted novel I wrote before that that then became the second novel I wrote like later when I was talking to writers I I learned uh how typical that is Mm -hmm. um and that in in some ways quite often what always interested me was that I, I'd meet writers who knew they wanted to be writers from age 12 or 11 or something because they were they, they loved reading and mm. and they got drawn to it. And then they spent their teenage years uh, sort of doing ambitious adolescent dry runs. You know, the first 20 pages of a novel or poetry or or short stories or whatever it happened to be. And um, I've, I've always felt kind of impressed by that and um and surprised like how could you know that young mm-hmm. um, uh but yeah so so before this podcast all started we were having a brief conversation about the oblique routes into writing mm-hmm. i was thinking yep i agree that my route was fairly oblique um so it, it was sort of cartoons via uh fake journalism via backpacking <laughs> and and then suddenly dis- suddenly writing a book and then and then thinking oh right so is that what i am now i'm a novelist mm. and uh and then struggled with that for a couple of years and thought no i'm not <laughs> <laughs> well once you'd once you'd written the beach what 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 was your next step then did you did you do the kind of classic route at that point of trying to find an agent to get out of there or or, or well, actually what happened was um what 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 really happened was this was so because of the oblique route i found that sort of to my surprise, I was a novelist. Um, uh, and everybody knows imposter syndrome. And mm. writers have a complex version of imposter syndrome because many writers are writing but not necessarily published. And so they, they get to double down on their own imposter syndrome. Yeah. You know? And um, But, but I, I had a very, very big dose of imposter syndrome, as, it, as I guess everybody does. And... Uh, I had a, but what I had was a 20 grand two book deal. So I had to, I had to write the second book. And um, so what I did was I cannibalized the aborted novel I'd written as the first book. I was about halfway through that when the beach came out and the beach became very strangely a, a sort of like a, old-fashioned paperback bestseller Mm -hmm. you know so there's the sort of book you'd see people reading on the tube you know and um uh so then i found myself i was in a really really strange place and very very quickly all the publishers who uh had sort of taken on the beach as a book to publish where a whole bunch followed like international ones after the thing worked in the uk where suddenly i had a deal now for for books three and four. And and at that point, I had a real crisis because I thought I've stumbled into this. I, I am essentially not just having imposter syndrome. I am also an imposter on, on top of, you know, on, on top of the neuroses. I am actually the real thing. And, um, and coincidentally, um, the the, the the book the beach had been optioned to be made into a film and when i when i went to visit the film set i thought 
maybe I could do this. Maybe I could write screenplays. Mm -hmm. So I did a very eccentric thing, which is probably, I was probably only able to do because I was in my 20s and uh, naive, I guess, but also I think scared of, of the book world. I didn't, I never felt at home there. Um, and so I paid back the advances and and got myself out of the contracts for books three and four and and then wrote a zombie movie and since then i've been writing but in the world of films and i have over the years learned oh no you were a writer mm -hmm. like like I, I now now i understand writing i really feel like i i really feel a sort of deep kinship with writing and i was i was wrong I, you know i was as much a writer as anybody else yeah. i was a young writer but you know just yeah that imposter syndrome weighed heavily obviously at, at that point maybe um now that you feel like that are you would you ever go back to writing a book again or are you firmly bedded into the world of film now well i i think there's a sort of sort of now now i feel comfortable with the idea of saying i'm a writer um which i have done for a while uh, since my 30s i guess mm -hmm. Um, uh, that I, I think I can sort of now compare and contrast the differences between writing novels and writing screenplays, and to an extent, then also writing for the theatre or writing a poem or or like w whatever the the vehicle for the writing might be. Um, just just go back to the thread of the question. Well, I, it was just it, really would wrong. you would you ever um, would I go, go back, back to a, a writing a fiction novel? So, so, so the problem, the problem for me with writing novels was that, aside from the fact I found it hard because I think it is hard, it, it's just a difficult thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's also incredibly solitary, and I am also a very solitary, quite reclusive person. And the having a job that forced me out of that, I thought was uh, sort of psychiatrically healthy, literally. Mm -hmm. So, so in some respects, I, I'd feel anxious about going back to to that to that isolation. Um, uh, but so it's nothing to do with form; it's to do with lifestyle. Right. Okay. And obviously, the the the, the beach was adapted by Danny Boyle, and then uh, twenty eight days uh, later was with Danny Boyle as well. Is that yeah. was it through that connection with Danny that you decided I'm going to try and write a screenplay, you know, what was it that made you think no, I'll try this? No, actually the connection really was with uh, a producer he was working with, uh, a guy called Andrew McDonald. Right. Um, because in the film world I think there's all sorts of ways films get perceived as processes and because we talk about directors and mm. auteur theory and stuff like that, we we have a sense of things flowing from directors, but actually for, from a writer's point of view, the primary relationship is really with a producer because it's the producer to whom the writer sends the script. Mm -hmm. So, so the pro the process is something like a writer writes, shows it to a producer, the producer and the writer work on it together. And then the producer goes about setting the film up. Right. So it's the producer that then approaches a director and a film studio and stuff. Um, 
so so yeah, it was actually it was it was Andrew Andrew McDonald um, who had made a sequence of films with Danny Shallow Grave and Train Spotting, mm-hmm. um, Life Less Ordinary, and and I. So just after they'd finished the beach, me and Andrew went for a pizza actually in Charlotte Street in London, uh, and. And I was just at the moment of thinking privately, I can't write more books. I can't do it. Mm. Um, And I said, look, I've got this idea uh, for a zombie movie set in London, except, and I had two things. I said, some of it would be in daylight and the zombies would run. And he said, yeah, that sounds like a really interesting idea. And years later, I learned producers always say that because... (laughs) Why would they put you off working very, very hard, <laughs> yeah. hard and maybe producing a script that they want, you yeah. know? Um, and in my mind, I thought over that pizza, I thought, my God, he, he's going to make it into a film. So I then, like, in a frenzied way, set about writing this running zombie zombie movie. And, um, uh, and, it's, and incredibly, it did work out. Of course, Andrew... Um, very experienced producer, and it was Andrew that brought in Danny, not me. Right. And and when you when you went back and you thought, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn this running zombie idea in, into a script. Um, you know, when you when you sat down to actually write that, what what was the writing process like for you writing a script going from going from writing books? Was it quite a change? Was it quite a challenge? Yeah, yeah. It, it was exactly like writing a book for the first time. Yeah. Because so so what happened with books was I liked reading. And I liked conceptually the idea of writing a book, but I'd never conceptualized what would it actually be to write a book. Mm. So all sorts of things that that people who do dry runs do is they start learning things like how you attribute dialogue. Do you say he said, she said at the end of every sentence? Do you say he said, she said, and then allow the reader to infer who is now doing this, or do you not do it at all? And um, uh, and and does the word said count as a repetition? I knew repetitions were a bit clumsy and weird, but did said count as a word? Like how many times could you use the word said on a page? Mm-hmm. And so so I and I remember this really clearly. I took books off my bookshelf. This is while writing the beach, and I looked at. J.G. Ballard and Graham Greene uh, and saw how they used the word said and I saw they did it in completely different ways. So I was, I, I was, so in a way what I'm saying is I had a huge amount of naivety going into it and with screenplays it was identical mm-hmm. and I repeated that, program, that process. So I said to Andrew, can you send me a screenplay so I see, know what one looks like? And then on a sort of early version of Word, I spent ages trying to format the thing. So I'd do like 10 spaces so uh-huh. or more so that the, the dialogue thing appeared in the middle of the screen and then I'd do two-thirds that number so the dialogue was slightly offset from the name of the character, blah, blah, blah. And um, uh, I actually picked up some idiosyncrasies of script writing formatting that I've kept all the way since then um, from from trying to copy 
what a script looked like on a program that was not designed to write scripts. <laughs> and with scripts, obviously, slightly differently from novels, although I suppose you do get edits on novels as well. But is that, as you said, it's a more collaborative process where you're, you know, it's not just here's my book and hand it in and, and walk away kind of a thing. How do you react to feedback and do you enjoy that collaborative process when you're trying to craft the story and make it make it the final product? Um, I did. I, I knew very well that I had a lot to learn. And uh, so I went in with a lot of humility and when people said you should do this, I'd think, okay, that's what I should do. Okay. And then gradually, over the course of 28 days later, I began increasingly to think, no, no, but I don't think that's right. I really don't think that's right. I, I wrote round about, I wrote 50 something drafts of 28 days later. Mm-hmm. And about 30 of them were to do with me not having learned yet to fight my corner. Right. And. What I think is that film is absolutely collaborative, but I also arrived in film from having been a novelist. And so you couldn't persuade me that authorship lay entirely with a director Mm -hmm. because I'd come from novels and I knew that integral to authorship was characters, locations, themes, what the characters are saying, why they're saying them, and all of those things are contained in the script. So I, I... so once once I'd sort of politicized myself and thought, hang on, there's an element of this which is like complete bullshit, just doesn't stand up to any scrutiny at all. I then started really digging my heels in. <clears throat> Danny is a terrific director and I learned an awful lot from Danny, but it did mean at a certain point we couldn't work together anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, because because essentially I stopped being up for things being changed. And I, I don't want to sound fascistic about it, but film is collaborative, but you also, you are the key collab, you are the key person within your area. So, so the real collaboration is uh, they have the key input into uh, what lens is being used. And if they say, I think it should be this lens and the camera should be over here, you listen to them before you start trying to change anything. So that's the collaboration, but it doesn't just mean deferring to everyone else's opinion. Mm-hmm. I think I'd read that. Um, I think it was just when you, Ex Machina was coming out, and which obviously was obviously was a film that you wrote and directed, and um, and you were saying basically that even though this was a film that you had made yourself, you know, in more ways than you ever had prior to that, you still didn't really feel like it was your film because it was it was so many other people were involved in it, the actors, the musicians, yeah. etc. Is, is that that part of that whole process of working with a whole group of people? Yeah, the, my my issue with auteurist principle, which would basically be to apply the concept of novel writing and drop it onto a film, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's authorship, essentially, yeah. is, is that it's typically at other people's expense. And so I think that the reason why I never felt ownership was because I never felt authorship. Mm-hmm. If... If in Ex Machina you had uh, changed the director of photography and kept everyone else the same, you would have a different film. 
Yeah. It would it would it would have things in common. It would have lots of things in common, but it also wouldn't be the same film. Mm-hmm. And then there's a big list of departments you could include in that. And uh, also actors, obviously. And so so I, it's very difficult for me to sort of stand there and say, uh, yes, I, I'm I'm the creative voice behind all these departments when when you know you're not. So but it's just as simple as that. And I mean, why don't take a film by credit? Right. Okay. I've, I've always I've I've always had a problem with the film by credit. I don't like it. I, I think it's kind of impolite, mm-hmm. and and I think that um, I think it's impolite and it's also inaccurate. And uh, um, it seems to me like a novelist can say, uh, "I, uh, Hilary Mantel, wrote this book." That seems mm-hmm. like a completely legitimate claim, mm-hmm. and I, I don't think that equivalent claim exists in film. And when before you started directing, you some of your other scripts were well i'm thinking of never let me go was an adaptation um with with, which is obviously a slightly different process again because you're not you know it's not your story to be you know you're adapting it from that that source i mean how did you find that process well so so the whole obviously the whole thing is always a learning process that that never really stops I think Never Let Me Go was was the, the the thing where I learned the most important final lesson about writing that allowed me to feel like I can legitimately call myself a writer, even though I have a very limited amount of writing within this thing, because it's it's in some ways it's almost transcribed from someone else's bit of writing. But but it really enabled me to look under the hood of writing and say, oh, I get, okay, that's what it is. Yes, I'm doing that, except I do it like this and he does it that way. And uh, so, it, so weirdly, that very faithful adaptation was the thing that I felt fi- made me feel comfortable sort of meeting somebody and them saying, what do you do? And I'd say, I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the thing that's paradoxical about that is that the, the what I learned when I lifted the hood was, and this is going to sound like I'm being kind of overly humble, but I actually really mean it. I really mean what I'm about to say. It's, it's just true. Mm. Um, what I learned when I lifted the hood was I learned that I was not being a good writer. I, I, I was being a really kind of probably a bit showy sometimes but and sometimes with actual flair and what I could what I saw was the the depth of the thinking in the way themes and characters and story belong together mm-hmm. so what I'd do is I'd have a theme which was something I cared about I had some characters which were effectively related to the theme but if the storyline and the themes began to diverge, which they had done significantly in the film I had just done, which is a film called Sunshine. Yep. I kind of would be, uh, I sort of took a, sort of like a, a bad builder. I sort of thought, well, I'll use some plaster and then I'll never know that that RSJ doesn't quite fit into that wall. And, um, <laughs> you know, I'll hang a picture over that crack or something. Yeah. So, and, and I did that. I did it very kind of consciously. Uh, 
in a weird way. Um, and then I saw the, so with that book, here's the thing, right? Never let me go. Kazuo Ishiguro, you know, clearly, you know, now a Nobel Prize winning writer. So, you know, he's, yeah. he's as, as respected as it gets, right? So, so what, what I found was that it didn't matter where I looked. Everything connected, joined up, had been thought through. The, the level of thinking in it, just the pure level of thinking was so deep. Now, that doesn't mean you've got to say it's you like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this was like uh, having a really good look around an old Aston Martin or something and thinking, wow, those engineers were very clever when they found a route around how to make the suspension or something like that. And and it, so it was like that. I knew enough about cars to be able to understand how well made this car was. Um and I thought very, very consciously, I need to up my game. I need to, I need some lessons learned. Um, uh, but, but how, like, so you, so you kind of identified the, the that from that. But how did that then? You know, when when you next came to a problem like in Sunshine, if if the characters and the storyline and the theme started to diverge, what approach? You know, what changed? What 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 did you bring to it that 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 uh, you think didn't about have the same harder. problems, right? Okay. Be, be rigorous. Uh, I I got a good lesson. This, this this would be like the bigger version of this same lesson, right? So I, I was working with another screenwriter right at the start. I'd just done twenty eight days later. I'd been hired to do a job working with another guy. It was for something for the BBC, and it never worked out. And there, there was a section in the story, and I said, the thing is, you know, the real problem is what this person would really do at this moment is call the police. And I was trying to engineer reasons why they couldn't call the police. Like the phone line had been cut or something. And the other writer said, no, no, you've got this all wrong. Like if what they do is call the police, then you have them call the police and then you figure out Mm -hmm. what happens next. And that, that was one of those, really simple brilliant bits of advice and what i was doing with themes where they're a bit more nebulous and abstract than you would call the police at this moment yeah. what i was doing was i was i was not bothering to call the police i was and, and because they're a little bit harder to get hold of mm-hmm. it was easy you could fudge it yeah, yeah. and and what ishiguru showed me was if you fudge it you can fudge it but it will be less good so make a decision. Make a decision. Do you want to try to be good or not? How how interested in the craft are you? Are you going to get serious about the craft or not? So I thought I will get serious about it. Mm-hmm. And does that does that lead to, you know, have you have you started since that moment? Have, have, it strikes me as something that you might get so far into a project that you're writing and you and just can't it. see. Yeah, yeah exactly. You would just ditch it. Yeah. And, and one of the great things about the screenplay in comparison to a novel is that you can discover whether to ditch it after five weeks. Right. And you, so, so I've written many, many screenplays and discovered this equation just doesn't add up. Mm-hmm. If you follow through, you will be, uh, you'll be doing at a, a best very mediocre screenwriting. So just stop 
do something else. Now, I, I, I realize that makes me then sound like I must be writing better than mediocre. But, but, but what, what I'd say is that these things are attached to your, at your internal sense of aspiration. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it's, not, it's not what you actually achieve, but it's how hard you are on yourself in, in your attempt to achieve it. Yeah. yeah. And, and when, you were, when you were writing um, Never, Let, Never Let Me Go and then later on Annihilation, both of which were adaptations of previous books, when, you, when you're turning that into a script... You know, because what works for a book doesn't always work well for a film, and I, I've certainly seen a number of films which are which are from a book and they've slavishly adapted it, and it to the detriment of the film. And how do you know? Is it kind of an, is it an like a kind of innate thing, knowing which, what worked well for a screen, or a conscious choice to say this has to change completely, or is it just won't work on the screen? By the so, I think what happened was the first time I did an adaptation was Never Let Me Go, and I thought to myself. This guy's a really, really great writer. I need to be as faithful as is humanly possible. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. And then by the time I got to Annihilation, it was actually the third adaptation I'd done. Because I also did a comic book character, Dread, Judge Dread mm-hmm. from 2018. And um with Dread, I thought I can't faithfully adapt this because we will not have the money to bring that world to the screen. Mm-hmm. But what I can do is faithfully adapt the character. And so that sort of like decoupled me from the anxiety of being overawed by something. And I then, by the time I got to Annihilation, I'm by that time, I'm sort of like an old dog you know i've been doing this over 20 years and and i'm kind of up for taking sort of craft slash creative risks so with annihilation i did something really weird like a very weird thing to do which was i got sent the book by a producer saying are you interested in adapting this i read it and about halfway through i thought this is not adaptable (laughs) Um, but it's a very interesting novel. I love the novel. I love what it's making me feel and what it's yeah. making me think, but, but you can't make this into a film. And then at the end of it, I thought, no, I think I'll give this a shot. But but what I proposed was, privately to myself, uh, only to myself, is I'm not going to reread this book. I'm never going to look at it again. I'm going to, because the, the act of reading the book is like a dream. So I'm going to do an adaptation of my memory of this book. Mm-hmm which is a very sort of meta type thing to do. But I felt for that particular novel was very appropriate because it's essentially a a surrealist dreamscape. And um, uh, so I think by that time, for whatever I had the kind of, uh, you see, it probably sounds like arrogance, but it's not. It's actually being really interested in craft. It's really being interested in like, what is writing? What is filmmaking? What, what, where are these parameters shiftable? Is that a reasonable, reasonable thing to do? Like, yeah. would it would it be reasonable? You see, I would say with Hamlet, I, I suspect that would be stupid to do an adaptation of Hamlet yeah. from memory, because because so much of what is vital about Hamlet is in the absolute specificity yeah. of the exact lines. So so you you, you are that you you are doing nothing uh positive but i mean except in the most kind of like uh, limited 
sort of thought experiment type way. It would basically be a fucking stupid thing to do. But, <laughs> but, in, but in the case of Annihilation, I actually thought this is respectful to the text um, and legitimate because of what it feels like to read the book. And I, I, of course, not everybody agrees with that and, and would say it, it was maybe equally as stupid to adapt Annihilation in that way as Hamlet. But, um, well, but you know, whatever. No, but I, like I, I thought, because I read the book uh, before I saw the film, and I, obviously they're very different things, but they both gave the same sense. Like the start of the book, I remember reading, and it was a very sort of detached but eerie kind of feeling as you were reading the opening of the book. And the film as well gave you that sense, even though, as you say, the, the, the story is it diverges quite a lot from, from what's in the book. So, I, so I, that's really fascinating because, because, sorry, I don't, I don't want to come. No, no, no. But, 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 but just to say, so th this is why I found it, it. It's why I found the thing so intriguing is because, because in a way, what you're saying when you say that is what is reading a book? Hmm. You know, what, what, what is it? Is, is it, is it, reasonably reducible to the, the the sequence the sort of experiential sequence of events mm -hmm. as you go from page one to the last page the, the, yeah the the feeling the feeling of reading the atmosphere of reading mm -hmm. um uh, when people don't like an adaptation very often what they're not liking is the tone yeah because it's the same characters and they're broadly doing the same thing. But it, it's like seeing an animated version of Tintin and you think, well, that's not what Tintin sounds like. Yeah. And, and, and so it, it's a kind of... Um... So anyway, sorry, I interrupted, but, but exactly what you said was, was exactly the thing that I thought that's, that would be interesting mm. to adapt the experience to actually adapt the experience of reading it anyway. No, I mean, that that's all I was really saying. And uh, yeah, I, I think it, in that sense, it's, it was it was a great... Certainly for me, it worked perfectly. Um, yeah. And, yeah, the shouting bear yeah. was one of the creatures that I think <laughs> I couldn't get on my head for quite a while after watching it. That scene was uh, was fantastic. Yeah, no, it was, I thought it was a great film. And I, cool. and, and I know what you mean about the the tone of something and and I, I've often found that even with with stories or films that are based on true events and and if they've changed you know people often get you know get quite annoyed if the if a film based on true events changes the events and say oh it's not actually that accurate anymore but I, I remember watching I think it was the Alan Turing movie and yeah. I know there's a fair bit of that which is not true it's not factually correct but I did feel that the way I feel, the, the emotions that I felt watching it, I thought were true enough yeah. that, you know, it, it kind of, I got what it was doing and the reason why it changed it was to, you know, try to boil that down to a, like a moment. It's, it's, it's a very, it, it gets itself into a difficult space though when, um, when it's saying this is true. Yes, so that, yeah, that's it, a fair point. Yeah. Because you could like, uh you you could then significantly change a historical event if mm. you see what i mean yeah no I, no um, that that is true that is true yeah but but I, t I i but i but i take your point and of course in that film they're not trying to do that um yeah i suppose they're they're, they're trying to give the gist of it 
yeah. were creating events to, to show one one event happening that was actually happening. Yeah, what, what they're really doing is that thing that they always do on biopics, which is like Johnny Cash, uh, you know, and someone says, like, hey, what's that ring of fire? And Johnny <laughs> yeah, that's right. around and says, what did you say? <laughs> yeah. I, 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 the, the, most, the most incredible example of that I saw recently was that Queen one, uh, oh, yeah. uh -huh. story. I thought it was. I thought it was very funny because it. I, I suspect very self-aware. It sort of went hell for leather for that particular. Um, yeah, I've not actually seen that. The only thing that I've seen is there's a scene in that film that has become sort of a a, a big thing for the amount of edit, the amount of cuts. There's one scene where they're all sitting around a table outside a, a on the sh a bar or something, and it, there's in it's like a minute long scene but every second is a cut to something else cut 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 and it you know for a chat around the table it, it, it's a bit it's excessive actually, it, it's a good film to talk about uh if if one's gonna get into the reality behind um auteur theory because because the director of that film got sacked halfway through and mm -hmm. the guy next to fletcher really That's right. yeah. yeah and and you you may be seeing the tension uh, between that, yeah, <laughs> and uh, I, I have, do have to ask about Dread. I think we're both big fans of yeah. Dread. Um, I thought the film is comic fantastic. Or the well, both the comic and, and the movie. Um, the the latest movie, not the, not the alone version, is you know it's got its own place and time. But um, and, I, and I did wonder. Obviously, you're a big fan of comic books yourself. And how did you get involved in that? And 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 I know you wrote scripts for or outlines for films two and three, which Sadly, I don't think we're ever going to see now. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, you you might, but it, but not not as anything to do with me. I mean, you, you never know. In in as much as the a license is as sort of interesting as that, probably is not over. I would mm -hmm. say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, well, I like I said, I grew up around comic books. My dad was interested in American comic books largely, and I got really into reading two thousand AD and. Um, uh, and a long time later, uh, a film executive um, uh, who had been the guy who basically made The Beach and 28 Days Later and Sunshine and Never Let Me Go. So I sort of knew him reasonably well by then, um, mm -hmm. uh, said, hey, what about Judge Dredd? He's actually a British guy who lives and works in America. He was working at Fox back then. And, um, uh, and I immediately thought, that's a great, I would love to do Judge Dredd. Yeah. I would absolutely love to do it. And, and then the next thing I thought was uh, an acute awareness of the Stallone movie, uh, which I'd watched <laughs> as a fan and, and was uh, underwhelmed. And um, so what I did was, uh, the first thing I did was to get on a train and go up to... Uh, the Northwest and track down uh, John Wagner, who who mm -hmm. wrote, and and I said to John, look, I really would love to adapt Dread, uh, and um, I'm gonna what I'm gonna do is write the character and try and find a story which stops us having to look too far in a way, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and and then and then just well, we see one of the things about Dread as well, which helps in the adaptation is they've They've, Wagner went back to it, but there there were lots of writers, lots of artists, lots of tones. Yeah. So sometimes 
dread was dead serious and other times it was almost slapstick comedy mm -hmm. and um so actually it gave me quite a lot of freedom but the main thing about dread was it was sort of dread fan stuff he can't take his helmet off yeah you yeah. know uh he's he's not cute mm -hmm. you know he's not suddenly going to be cute and um fall for the girl you know? yeah yeah. Something. it's 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 that kind of you know but but that aside it then became like war <laughs> Not <at all. laughs> it, that that film was a very 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 challenging difficult movie to make in 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 sort of all, what felt like limitless ways at the time um uh, it was political complicated and i got rabid about it i got absolutely rabid uh, I, I walked off the film actually for a few months because I was so angry about some of the things that were being done. Mm. And then I was allowed to walk back on. And uh, um, uh, I think it's because I loved Dread actually. It was a childhood thing and I just couldn't deal with it being fucked with in a certain kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 as as someone that grew up reading 2000 AD as well, again, I, I thought the portrayal of dread was was brilliant I and mean, it's just yeah, Carl was good wasn't he he was very he was good fantastic because yeah. he wasn't he wasn't one because 2000 ad fans they always like cycle through actors like clint eastwood yeah. or, uh -huh. you know, or, the, or the, there'll be some guy like who's got a big chin yeah, yeah that's right he's like five foot two or something and he's not really the right guy at all but he's got a great chin yeah and then they'll photoshop like the helmet yeah that's right <laughs> he's perfect and and carl was interesting because carl was a big big comic book fan he read every single dread wow every single one. wow yeah. yeah and anyway sorry i cut you off I'm no 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 I, 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 I was just going to say that it was a shame that it it it, it didn't lead to films two and three because i did enjoy it so much um I wondered with that as I'm glad the, actually. I'm glad. Hey, you're glad that it's just a standalone. Why is that? Well, I, I am. I'm really, really glad that happened, and and it's because um, unless you have a lot of internal creative strength of a certain sort and a lot of backup from a certain world, a financial world, uh, studio world you will compromise yourself on two and three severely. Right. Okay. You'll get exhausted. Um, you'll, you'll, I'm, not you, me. I'd second guess myself. What happened was it was a nightmare to make. It was, it was very difficult. It survived by the skin of its teeth. The film had a lot of heart and people reacted to that. Mm -hmm. and, and now what it is, is it's like a sort of cult movie for people who it is, it. Yeah. It wasn't a big hit, but people who like it really like it for the right reasons. Yeah. And and if I had been doing two and three, I almost guarantee I'd have squandered that. Mm. Yeah, it has. It's it is definitely one of these movies that's that's growing yeah. bigger the more, the more time has passed. Really, I think. Well, it, it could only grow bigger. It grow bigger. <laughs> that was its only root in life. <laughs> I mean, actually, I th I think one of the reasons it didn't do well is that it was marketed you know it was dread 3d and they pushed the 3d angle so hard that uh it, it was at a it, time it, that people it, it was dumped it was it was dumped yeah i mean yeah. okay but also people weren't interested the the actually in truth the stallone movie was absolutely toxic mm -hmm. it's it's one of those things weirdly it's very very strange right it's a terrible terrible movie but lots of people have seen it yeah yeah 
it's more it, more than the recent one, which is weird. Yeah. Way more, way, yeah. way, way more, mm-hmm. way more. And and it's one of the funny, you know, if a film's been around for a long time, if it's got a big film star like Stallone, if it crops up on Channel Four yeah. at eleven o'clock at night, or these days Netflix or whatever, by the time we came out, everybody had seen Dread and everyone thought it was crap, and so we we were sort of dead out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, well, and then after after that, you did move into directing, and I'm just wondering how how you made that step up from or step across however you want to describe it into into actually directing as well as writing well um uh i think well the first thing i I don't know to be honest i'd done a fair amount of directing before and i i sometimes feel like i'm being disingenuous if i say ex machina was the first bit of directing i did because it wasn't uh and um, I, I was actually, I was quite comfortable with it, but, but also I approached it as a writer. If, so now I've lost my imposter syndrome. If somebody does say to me, what do you do? I say I'm a writer, that, that's, mm-hmm. that's my job description. And for me, often directing is about just not having to have a director there. Right. You know, that, that's... that's um, uh, I, I've written a script. A script is is like the architect blueprint mm-hmm. to make the building. Someone else has got to decide which, you know, tables go in the bar or whatever, you know. But um, but but my key bit of work is the script, and then it's about just trying to have all this team communicating with each other and. Um, you know, like we were talking about form and stuff like that, mm-hmm. structure and form, which is, which is in some ways what I'm most interested in. You know, like on a personal level. Yeah. And any frame of a film, it, it's got a, a proper symphony happening: sound design, score, acting, script, lighting. You know, a, a, a grip pushing a dolly. Yeah. The cameraman on the dolly. You know costume hair yeah, yeah, yeah. it just goes on and on and on and at that moment all of these things are working together and um uh i i find that i find that that aspect of the craft really really fascinating and i feel like my uh, often my big act my big act is to write a script that's my big contribution <laughs> And then what I'm trying to do is just facilitate the meeting point between all these disciplines and, and really not get in their way often. Just 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 for help, like help by clearing a path rather yeah. than by creating the path. And when you when you sit down to to actually write, you know, what, what's your what's your style? Do you do you plan it all out? I, I think I'd read somewhere that you, you said you always know the ending and it's kind of about how you get to that point and is that is that true for everything you do or is that only certain projects or or is that total nonsense no no that that that's true that's true um uh on things where i've controlled the ending i've always known the ending okay um so start with an ending and then then what i do is i uh i i i write a very very simple sequence of beats out um and they are they're sort of like nudges and i i don't 
elaborate the beats because I know, so if, if one of the beats is uh, they go into house, encounter mutant bear. And if I then start elaborating on that, um, I'll end up writing that scene. Yeah. And, and I won't know how I got there or what comes next. Mm-hmm. So, and I think, you know, one of the really interesting things about being a writer is that you, you can get kind of stuck on ideas, not stuck as in, I don't know what the idea is, but, but trapped in an idea. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because it can feel incredibly precious. And so if I fuck with this idea, this bit of magic will turn to smoke and I'll never get it back and all that yeah. kind of thing. But actually, uh, this was another of my early lessons. It's a job you never get promoted. And you, you, you if you're going to have a career, you, you could write one book you, and that would be great. You know, that would be like you did this great album in... 73 and that's what you're known for yeah. that great album you know but but if you're going to have a career you are absolutely relying on the fact that you will continue being able to have ideas mm-hmm. because because you're not promoted you're always the person who's going to have to be doing that yeah. you will always get the blank page you will and you there's no delegation so so i don't worry about the story beats too much because it's baked into the whole thing that when i get there I'll have to be inventing stuff just like I do every other day of my working life. You know, mm-hmm. I learned that from my dad because my dad was a cartoonist and everyone used to say to my dad, how do you know you'll come up with a new, an idea for a cartoon every day? Mm-hmm. Because that's what he had to do. Yeah. And he, he, he was just like, because that is basically what my job is. And in some senses, on some level, the writer's job is having that idea and then having sufficient craft to convey it. Mm. And when you're when you're doing a draft of a, a screenplay, are you someone that you know? Do you try and blast through the draft to get to the end that you, that you've yeah. thought of, okay. and then go back to it, or do you revise it as you go? But the first, um, the last thing I did was this TV, eight-part TV show, mm-hmm. Devs. Mm-hmm. And I did not revise. The, the The first draft was basically the shooting script, apart from a couple of changes right. here. And uh, it was written... It, it was it was round about two and a half weeks an episode, two to two and a half weeks an episode, depending on the episode. And that that's where I've ended up. I, I've got a film which I hope to make next year. I've w- written one draft, and I really hope I don't have to rewrite it. Mm. And and I think, um, uh, I don't know. It's terribly hard talking about these things because I never want to sound prescriptive. But it, it's all to do with the route you've chosen to take, the thing you were interested in. And I can see a lot of value in writing and rewriting and rewriting. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Ishiguru, I know, writes a massive, massive amount. He writes a novel. His first draft novel is six to eight times the yeah. length that the novel will end up being. And and that, that makes an awful lot of sense to me. Uh, but on the thing I'm interested in, in a way, the leaner I get at it, the better. Mm-hmm. That's just that's just the kind of writing I'm interested in. So uh, yeah, 
And a lot of the stuff that you make, I'm thinking of Annihilation, Ex Machina, and Debs. It's it's very visual. There's a lot of there's a really visual feel to it. You know, whether it's it's the imagery of stuff or it's just the the feeling that that you get watching watching it. Um, and is that is that the way that you write? Do you see that? You know, are you trying to capture that image that you have in your head, or is that something that comes yeah. afterwards? Yeah, it's that a grand drawing. Um, uh, I my my teenage years were not spent writing; they were spent drawing. Mm-hmm. And so I I think in pictures, um, and usually I have a very very clear idea of what, what I want something to look like. And in fact, my where I started to stop being able to work in directors, that's where it began. Mm-hmm. It didn't look right, and I couldn't I couldn't get that needle out of my head. Did, did did that affect as well the way that you wrote your screenplays, knowing that it would be you that would be directing it? Uh, so yeah, I mean, like a lot of people, again, I don't want to sound self-deprecating, sort of overly uh, sort of British bullshitty way, but um, I, I kind of I, I read a screenplay very very early on. It was just after writing Twenty Eight Days Later. And it was Walter Hill's rewrite of Alien. Mm-hmm. Alien had been through a lot of writers, started with a guy called Dan O'Bannon. And then you read Walter Hill's script and you electrically feel in the film. And you also see how much of the film is contained in the script, actually. And what Walter Hill d- did, I then copied. So I sometimes see screenplays and it will say... Uh, uh, interior cafe uh, day, a waitress glides between tables mm-hmm. as a couple lean towards each other. And I'll say, and then go on for another yeah. 10 lines. And I'll write interior couple day, two people sit opposite each other and then get into the dialogue. Mm-hmm. I, it, I I just, um, what? sorry, I, everything I say is all, it's all sort of writing theory in a weird kind of way. Mm-hmm. I, so with the beach, I wrote this book. It was supposed to be a criticism of the backpacker scene. And about half the people, including Danny, actually, who made it into a film, saw it as a celebration mm-hmm. of the backpacker scene. Yeah. And that was like a very clear demonstration of what we all know, but also instantly forget, which is that 50% of the narrative is the reader. And, yeah. I, and essentially, whole chunks of books needn't exist in some respects they're basically nudges for the reader's imagination and um and i lent hard in that direction and and i think why i love screenplays is that they become the sort of most distilled version of that um there's so much space yeah Mm -hmm. you know no, but it is, it is, it is, as you say, it's, it's such a different, because cause Tarek and I have, have, have written some screenplays together and yet we both write novels as well. And they're such a different um, yeah. thing that, that you have do a look have. At Walter Hills. Have a look at Walter Hill's Aliens. Yeah, no, we will. It's available yeah. online. Have a look at it. Because cause if you care about writing, mm-hmm. it's the bluntest yet most beautiful writing it okay. just shows you how few words are required yeah 
It's no. like haikus. I absolutely love it. Anyway, sorry. No, no. The, 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 you guys, have, you, you guys have written screenplays. Yeah. yeah no. Well, all the same is that they, they are. They're such a different form, and it is. It, I think the base screenplays, the screenplays that I have read, the base ones are those ones that are so lean that. But at the same time, as you read them, you can absolutely see you're taken into what yeah, what, the, what they're trying to do. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Well, they are, they're a very pure bit of writing because they're, they're, they're they are really communication, mm-hmm. writing as communication. Yeah. They exist partly so that every department knows what they need to do within a scene. Yeah, that's right. And so, so, so they're not really directed at readers, they're directed at technicians. So they're like manuals or something. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, and and yeah. I, so I I really like that. But I also think I remember I I had this in me before because I remember reading Name of the Rose a long long time yeah, ago, yeah. and just skipping page after mm-hmm. page after page because I just thought I, I don't need to know that, don't need to know that, don't need to know that. And so it's it is one form of reading. You know, mm-hmm. there, there are lots. It's a broad church. How yeah, you yeah. choose to approach reading. And the kind of reader I am then is also the kind of writer I am, I suppose. Um, um, when you when you're doing something like Dave's, which obviously was was just on recently, um, how do you know a story? You know, did you imagine that idea as a story for a, a an episodic, a, a limited TV series as opposed to a film? Yeah, yeah, it came to you as that. Yeah, because because I'd been contracted to to. So I'd I'd had a rough ride in film, mm. like uh, one way or another, uh, a, a good ride because I'd always managed to get stuff made, but but it hadn't been fun. Mm. And and creatively, like a film like Annihilation, that's its its creative intent is as it was intended. I mean, it's it, it it's it is the thing it was intended to be as much as mm. yeah. Um, uh, but it was a hell of a fight getting there, and I was I was tired of that fight. I'd just been worn down by the endless brinksmanship the sort of endless well if you do that i'm off yeah no you know you just you just it works but it's exhausting and uh and by then that those that television company fx in america they knew what they were going to get and so they so i wasn't going to disappoint them when i delivered it because they understood this is the kind of stuff this guy is going to come up so had they come to you and said yeah, it's a show. Okay, I see. Right. So th- they came to me and said, "Would you like to try working in television?" And I bit their hand off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and so then, uh, like with Ex Machina, you know, one of the reasons I wrote Ex Machina mm-hmm. was because I thought, uh, you know, dreaded Bond, never let me go, Bond, sunshine of Bond. Uh, I know enough about the film industry now to know I'll never get more than fifteen million dollars for a film. So I'm going to write a film that I'm pretty sure we can make for $15 million. And it, there's a, I'm, I'm very pragmatic like that. Mm-hmm. And with devs, I thought, okay, okay. So these guys are giving me a free hand. Uh, I, I think I've got enough energy in me to write eight episodes, probably not 10. So I need an eight episode story. I'm really interested in a whole bunch of questions that are a little bit too sort of, involved really to do in the i'd have to be rattling through them if it was a movie 
Mm-hmm. And so I've had them in the back of my mind for a while. And I could have made a movie out of any one of them, but in this I can really I could they all cross relate. Like yeah. if we were having a drink together, I I would be cross relating these different things, not focusing on one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. TV series, okay, right. I can actually I can do this thing about free will and quantum physics or whatever, you know. And um yeah, so then I just wrote it out. And given the experience that you had on that, is is TV something that you want to work in again then? Uh, I would. It's the thing that was most like writing a novel since I stopped writing novels. Right. Um, Because because a movie is not at all like a novel, really. It's like a, you know, a novella. Mm-hmm. or a long short story it's in that sort of weird space yeah. between do you call this a short story or a novella mm-hmm. that that's really what movies are um like uh like if you look at the godfather or something which doesn't feel like that but one of the reasons it doesn't feel like that is the godfather really is two films if, mm-hmm. you, if you ignore the third it's really two films yeah. and yeah, both yeah. of them are very long films and you could parcel them out into six hours of tv essentially yeah so, yeah uh i so it it reminded me a lot of of novels and um for the, what that means what that means is it's exhausting in the way that <laughs> it's exhausting it's it's the thing about a screenplay because it's a short story a film you can hold all the pieces in your head yeah you, you can keep all the stuff suspended so someone walks up and says oh look this thing on this page or this character and you can say yeah that's because da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. and with a novel you can it you can do it you can do it but it's it's a it's a big part of your brain yeah. like why that character how you implied that this character thought this thing because you were going to pick yeah. that up 15 pages that's a lot to hold suspended and and that is what a tv show is like so i'm not the thing i'm going to try to do next is not that I'm going to try and make a movie because I need some oxygen, um, and uh, and and books always scared me. Writing books always scared me, and mm. I think TV scares me in the same way. But that doesn't mean I won't do it again. It's just anxiety producing, I suppose. Yeah. And, and you've you've also uh, written, uh, you wrote. Uh, a, a video game story as well. Um, did I, I just want to say uh, just because you said Tarek had just written a book, yeah, and, and I said like, oh, well done. Um, uh, I, I really, really do mean that. Like, I think that, that there's this sort of really kind of irritating sort of it, it's it's like a it, it's like there's something sort of pious about it where someone will say writing's hard. And someone will say, well, it's, you know, it's not like I worked down a coal mine or something. Yeah, yeah, it's not, it isn't like you worked down a coal mine, Mm -hmm. but that in no way means it's not hard. And writing a book is really, really hard. It's challenging on so many levels. Uh, It's technically challenging for the reasons of the suspension of all the stuff. It's emotionally challenging. You're going to have to face any amount of self-doubt and and because it's a fucking book, you're going to have the self-doubt for like two years. And, <laughs> and, and, and so, so, so w- when I said it, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't being glib. I really meant it because I thought, oh, I, I, I remember that well enough to know what that's like. And, and it's, and it's no joke. So, 
uh, well, so you know, congratulations. Thank you. Cheers. No, no, I think I think you're right. I think there is. I can definitely see the, like the scripts that I've written, I've written with Marco. They are easier to hold in your head. That they just are smaller. Yeah, just easier. Shorter stories, a shorter yeah. two hours worth of stuff. Yeah, it, it um, could. It, it's just much easier. It's mm-hmm. much much easier. Ian McEwan, I think it was Ian McEwan. I'm going I'm to pretend it was Ian McEwan. Said um, this thing about uh, writers. Um, he said two really good things about writers, except he probably didn't say either of them. <laughs> but, but but he he but then he probably did anyway. So it, and it, it's about um, so one of them is about making sure you do living between projects you know and 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 that's very sensible but the other is about which is the relevant one here is about every now and then once or twice a year a writer gets on a roll and they have these two days where it's like then you, you know like uh, angela lansbury on <laughs> yeah. the, the tv show and she's like tossing bits of paper <laughs> on her and and it's like for a writer it's the best feeling ever it's like this wonderful feeling and all the rest of the time they're pursuing that feeling again and and i i think that's very very true and i think the great thing about screenplays is you can do the whole thing in that three-day way yeah and and so so i think that's why i like screenplays and I really rate screenplays. I think there's wonderful craft in it. I'm not going to be relativistic about the different mediums, but I do think on, there are some basic levels where it's easier than writing novels. It just is. Yeah, um, yeah and I, I just made, I was just bringing up the fact that you had written a, a video game as well. I mean, what was oh, yeah. what was that like? Um, well, I didn't. I didn't. Okay. I, I mean, what happened was I, I love video games and this this guy tamim and his company had made this game and what they needed was a writer to write the dialogue for the scenes they right. had already okay, I see. Ah, I see. Okay. and in fact already kind of had pretty much the dialogue and uh and so i really wanted to see like as you can probably tell i'm super interested in craft mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but i wanted to know what is the craft of writing for video games yeah. yeah and so they're generous when they say that right that this but, but i you know i did i worked on it really hard mm-hmm. i did i did what i could i mean i i i, I tried as hard as i could but but it but i didn't i didn't write that video game in the way Tariq wrote his book mm-hmm. okay yeah, we've, we've chatted to a few folk who who mainly make games, and they they've they've kind of said that it it does sound like a very very different type of writing. And I think it would be very interesting to get to really learn that kind of craft because I think you know you're writing possible dialogue that might never be said, or if you trigger something and it's branching pathways and stuff. Yeah, there is that. There is that, but it, there's also um, uh, v- video games have a complicated relationship with narrative mm-hmm. because. Because the, the the medium is both incredibly suited for narrative and also very not suited. Yeah. And the, the the basic problem that video games have is that the narrative is likely to get splintered at any moment by a problem solving exercise. Yeah. And yeah. and you're you're not actually thinking about the character anymore. It's do you, are you guys gamers? Yeah. Yeah. Both are. Yeah. Yeah. So you've played The Last of Us. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. The the thing that 
Bioshock did it too, for me it did it at any rate. But um, what The Last of Us did was it somehow managed to keep full commanding control of the story while the game was unfolding. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and there are maybe, you know, God of War, the most recent mm-hmm. God of War, it also did that. It yeah. also managed to keep the story alive. Um, there are a handful of games that can do that. And there are truckloads of books and films that can do that yeah. because they're comfortable with their own medium. Yeah. So the kind of thing I had, I remember is one of the first conversations I had about that game was they were saying, ah, oh, we want this protagonist to be a real, uh, this is not my word, by the way, they're a real badass, right? And, um, and so he's walking along this bridge and there's this guy trying to climb up the bridge and he looks down and he stamps on his hand and he falls to his death. And that shows how much of a badass he is. And I said, but, because I'm thinking like a filmmaker or yeah. a novelist, and I'm saying, well, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean he's a badass. It means he's a completely innocent person who could have just helped up, you know. And, and what was interesting was that you even had to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Now, if you went into a group of Hollywood executives and you were pitching it the other way around, mm-hmm. they'd say, hang on a minute, you are distancing me from the protagonist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So, so there, there's a there's a cultural there's, there's there's a sort of cultural difference there. I think I, that's why I find The Last of Us and God of War, and weirdly this little game I've been playing on the Switch recently called Hades. Right. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Which which has a really quite strong narrative thread running through it. And uh, so so games have this huge power, but only a few of them are really flexing the muscle. Yeah. I mean, we spoke to. Um a guy called Ian Dallas who made a game. Have you played What Remains of Edith Finch? Uh, a game. It's it's a little indie game. Yeah, it, it's it's like one of those uh, gone home games. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They call them walking simulators or whatever. But um, but it was really fascinating speaking to him in terms of you know it's like a little uh, series of short stories almost, but wrapped in this narrative that they've got. And for him, he was more focused on what, you know, he was trying to create what he, I think his goal was to, you know, he wanted to create a feeling with each, within the player in each story. And it, it's a very successful game in that sense because somehow the pool you write in, in a way, you know, because you're in control of the character, it can do that in a way sometimes that other mediums can't. But at the same time, he's always thinking about the technical side of it as well when he's trying to do that. So it definitely is a different craft. It, you know, it would be something it, fascinating to get into. It, but, but yeah, but something fascinating because that there's there's a sort of blurred, there's an innately blurred fourth wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, whereas like the mediums that we work in, the funny thing is that our fourth wall is always being broken. Mm-hmm. But we don't allow for it in a funny way. So, yeah. so that act of imagination that means that two people read the same book differently is in a way a sort of, that, that, that yeah. is that, you know, page human sort of line getting messed with. Mm-hmm. The video, ga- video games do it overtly. And, um, uh, you, you know, 
at some point there'll be like you know Tolstoy and you know yeah. Chekhov and mm-hmm. Scorsese and but at the moment it's a very small game. Yeah, it is, it is definitely. Yeah, and Bioshock did an interesting thing where it kind of it kind of made the fact that the player was pushing pushing buttons, moving sticks, yeah. part of the narrative itself, and it, it kind of became more than the the no, game it, story. It was it was so clever. What yeah, Bioshock did the, the moment where I realised this is a brilliant, engaging narrative, and it is also an absolutely perfect commentary. Mm-hmm. Of the way a video game designer is themselves yeah. Yeah. controlling yeah. Not, not just where you go, but like within a screen where you look. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Put a shaft of light. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Grabbed you either. I, I thought that was that was one of my sort of greatest video game moments ever where I just sat back in the chair and thought, Jesus Christ. Yeah. That was really really smart and not just smart but beautifully executed i love yeah. it also have you played the, the the second last of us part two yeah just finished it yeah well what, what struck me about that one as well in terms of the narrative was that you know you've got the the whole first half of the game where you're with ellie and then you go, you suddenly are this is obviously a spoiler i'll, I'll warn people of this before um, but uh, the second half of the game you're playing as as abby who's been this character that obviously killed joel in the first part and you your instinct is to dislike this person but by playing as her and taking it through the story you suddenly by the end of it you you've warmed well i think most people will have warmed her so it's a, a very clever way of yeah, doing it I yeah, absolutely big bold brave move they did there mm-hmm. and what it what it did amongst other things was it um was it disproved a bit of you know i'm 50 and i grew up around video games and i would read video game magazines and there'd be these heated debates about what made games special and stuff like mm-hmm. that what there, there was a theory within video games for a long time which the a very good example of it is Master Chief in the Halo mm-hmm. game, uh, who in a way is a bit like Judge Dredd, mm-hmm. in, in as much as, it, except he's not, because uh, Judge Dredd is actually a very complete character. But Master Chief was a blank character because it was a first-person game and the player had to be given space to project into it. Yeah, And I always thought, whether that was what the Halo people were saying or not, I definitely knew people in the industry who were saying that, um, that that was just wrong. And uh, anybody who's ever read a book and the protagonist is entirely different in every way from the way they are, mm. knows that there is no problem with, you know, we're a bunch of empathy machines and one yeah. thing we don't find difficult is projecting ourselves into characters and 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 in a way what last of us 2 did is it took that to a a, a very sort of clever and extreme mm-hmm. end you know mm-hmm. yeah i um i definitely struggled at the very end of last of us part 2 when it's the the fight scene between ellie ellie and abby and i kind of realized i didn't I didn't want it to happen. I didn't, you know, you didn't, I, 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 the narrative Which forced the fight. what they wanted. That was a, yeah. exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was, it kind of drove oh, forward how well done it was. If I had ever had a beer with the people that made that game, that's exactly what I'd ask them about, is that last fight. Yeah. Um, uh, partly, why is it violent in the way it's violent? 
Why does it go on as long as it goes on? Mm. Why does the player not have the ability to uh, to behave in a way that is, um, as it were, appropriate? I don't mean ethically appropriate, but appropriate to their experience of everything that's preceded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a significant danger of like that Tintin voice thing. I was saying. Mm-hmm. Where Think that's not what Tintin sounds like. Yeah, you, yeah exactly. You had the, you know, the the Ellie experience and the Ambi. Yeah, exactly. You've had the you've had those two experiences, and you now have your own complex feelings. Mm-hmm. And the chances of this very extended violent scene running roughshod over that experience is high. I I would be fascinated to that talk to them about that i suspect it is because there is a point being made you know that there, there, there is a thesis and the thesis is playing out at that moment yeah i think but but, that, but the point didn't land on me because mm-hmm. i was thinking i don't want to kill her yeah no, that's yeah, right I know yeah what you mean. yeah exactly yeah and it was the same actually with the at the 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 part where you're is it is it before you become Abby when Ellie gets back to the theatre and you're chasing her around the back room and shooting yeah. her and stuff it, I, I had exactly mm-hmm. the same point at that at that yeah. point as well um, but but then Abby doesn't kill Ellie no yeah that's true yeah uh-huh. and and so that felt I get this mm-hmm. you know uh, any anyway it's it's yeah it's 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 fascinating, isn't it? I mean, uh, like, I don't know. You know what? So what we're talking about, like, this is the stuff I find interesting. This, this is yeah. what I find myself thinking about again and again and again and again. And and one of the the interesting thing about writing is is then these kinds of, in some ways, quite mechanical discussions and conversations that one needs to have in order that the person who is the recipient of it is having a kind of yeah. scene, mm-hmm. uh, emotional yeah. experience. The, 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 n- n- not to take it away from video games, because I love video games, but th- there, there was a comparison. I've, I've, I have sort of talked about it before in other contexts, but basically what it is, it's the difference between Catcher in the Rye and Ulysses, where you have two two novels, one of which is in many ways very like an actual stream of consciousness, and the other one which is in no way like a stream mm-hmm. of consciousness. And the one that is not like a stream of consciousness, Catcher in the Rye, the effect of reading it is much closer to a stream of consciousness than Ulysses, which is bloody difficult. And uh, so, it, and that, that, it's that, that's the kind of thing... So years ago when I fantasized, I'd take these books off the shelves to figure out how writers did it. And I'd fantasize that they all sat around talking about things. And I wondered which cafes they went to and if I'd ever join their club and that kind of thing. <laughs> that's what I thought. That's what they about. <laughs> well, we get to do it on the podcast at least. So that's, that's good. Yeah. What, what we've, yeah, there's the only the, the only, I'm, I'm trying to remember, there was this book I had, uh, which was Paris Review. Into, and that was the only place I, 
I was able to find, this is pre-internet, mm. writers talking about writing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, you, you've said um, that you're, you're hoping to make a film next year. Is that, is that the thing that's on your slate at the moment then? Yes. And so in that way, I said I'm a pragmatist. Um, I've written a sort of COVID-proof movie. Right. Okay. <laughs> it's two people in a house. Excellent. Nice. Nice. <laughs> because partly because uh, I, you know, I've been working for years. Most of the people I know in the film industry are crew. And so you get to know about all these other productions dotted around different places and what they're yeah. encountering. And one of the interesting things about COVID uh, in in my world, I, I say interesting I mean, I'm sure you understand the spirit in which I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. COVID was absolutely horrible. Yeah. Interesting. Um, uh, But it's that big, powerful, mighty productions are are more susceptible to it than nimble, smaller ones. Yeah. It's um, uh, like if you were making a $400 million Disney movie right now, it would be terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. But if it's a low-budget horror movie set in Gloucestershire in a house, <laughs> oh, is, that, is that a little hint as to what, what it might be about? No, no, that's not a hint. That's what it's about. Okay. <laughs> Even better. <it's> been... <laughs> um, what was the last book that you read? <laughs> oh. Uh, that's an interesting so this is this is my sort of weird um <laughs> i i don't read all right okay i i i read a lot when i was a teenager and there's a there's another writer he's a very very good writer he's one of the only writers i know and he he says what like so i was talking about ballard and Ishiguru. these people mm-hmm. i read when i was a yeah. teenager the last novel I read might be Annihilation, which I was sent as a as a gig. Like, do, mm-hmm. do you want a writing job? Um, I uh, I I think this is partly because I've got a sort of OCD ish, or OCD is not the right word, but it's it, it's it's overly concerned with deconstructions. I think, and so I find reading books like uh having 10 people shouting at me at the same time mm-hmm. because i immediately start looking at sentence structure punctuation uh what why is this adjective there yeah or and and it it freezes me so quickly um and so what happened for a while was that the only books i could read for a few years were books i'd already read yeah. And and then I kind of checked out, and uh, I it, it's it's like a version of that annihilation thing where, um, so what my friend was saying was, it's not just wrong; it's perverse to be a writer who stops reading, and and in some weird big experiment way, I've ended up saying, okay, well, let's see. You know, and um, so so I I barely read and I barely watch stuff. 
Right. Well, but I, but I do. What I read is uh, essays. Okay. That's what I read. Is I read lots of essays. Well, that might also answer the second question, which is, <laughs> what was the last film you watched? <laughs> yeah. Um, what was the question? It wasn't. What, was, uh, what, what was the last film that you watched? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to figure out, A, what was the last film? B, do I lie? <laughs> and B, do I tell the truth? Because it's going to end up being... Uh, something so kind of nothing. Um, and now I can't say what it is because then I'm inadvertently. <laughs> uh, it was a film that had been made for Netflix and uh, um, uh, with uh, Bill Murray. and. Richard. Oh, yeah. Is that the Sofia? Yes. Sofia Coppola movie. Yeah. Any good? Yeah. Was that a lie? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I'll ask it because we always ask it. But <laughs> uh, what was the last TV show that you watched? TV series? Oh, it was. Um, uh, you, you know what? I wish it wasn't the last one. Because... <laughs> you can lie. You don't need to say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it. The last TV show I watched was. No, I, yeah, I'm going to lie. Actually, I'm okay. going to lie. Um, uh, it was um, I May Destroy You. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Michaela Cole, yeah. The thing is, that, yeah, I, I, have, I have watched, a, I, I, you know, I've watched some crap because uh, I don't go out much. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, but, but in terms of the, thi- the last thing I saw where I kind of got electrified by it, and I thought, this is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, this is... This this is hitting me on ten different levels. It was that. Yeah, it's quite it's a tough watch. It's you know it's it's quite difficult, and she's not always the most likable character, and it, it makes you feel things. You you kind of question yourself a little bit, and it's yeah, it's a really well done piece of work. I think I can't say I don't know if I enjoyed it or, but I, yeah. I really I really appreciated it. I think you know that uh, that empathy thing that we mm. talk about. Mm-hmm. Like you, you don't need a blank slate. You can have anybody. Um, like uh, you know, Tony Soprano's not a nice guy. Yeah, and uh, Walter White's not a nice guy, and Travis Bickle's not a nice guy. Yeah. So um, and uh, I, I don't, I don't want to get sort of all sort of virtue signaling and stuff, but we're very comfortable with men being that. Yeah. That yeah. Con- having that those conflicted thoughts about men, it's just comes very naturally because there's so many examples. Um, so, so she's not traditionally nice, but she is definitely, uh, as well as being all sorts of difficult things, she's incredibly vulnerable. So, so the vulnerability gives you yeah. a bit of in that, that yeah. for, for me anyway. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a, it's a really good show. Um, it, it, it's, it's great because it's, it's got something virtuoso about it and, uh, so that makes you. Uh, it's it's a funny it's a funny thing. It's like actors. Like you can be simultaneously locked into the scene they're doing, and also at the same moment thinking they're a very good actor. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And I they mean, should be in conflict with each other. There's one step back and mm-hmm. the other's step yeah. in. And but I felt something like that when I was watching that show. I was I was both fully in it and also 
thinking, wow, this is really quite good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the very, very last thing we do is a quick fire, either or. Um, and I like to say there's no right answer apart from one. Uh, <laughs> so the, the first one is uh, Sylvester Stallone or Carl Urban. <laughs> oh, yeah, but I was, I clearly made a choice already. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Walking Dead or Dawn of the Dead? Dawn of the Dead. Uh, fancy restaurant or a takeaway? Fancy restaurant. Uh, TV or cinema? Fuck. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm I'm gonna say cinema, but am I allowed to enlarge on it? Absolutely, yeah, no, you yeah, can't, no, go yeah. for it, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm going to say cinema because I'd have so little interior life without cinema. And cin- TV was shit when I was growing up for the most part. Yeah. And so I'd have to say cinema. But I also think that the best adult drama at the moment is on television. Yeah. yeah Typically on television. And uh, the last one real book or ebook? For someone that doesn't read. <laughs> uh, um, I would have said real book until about a year ago. And um, uh, so the, the, the truth is, I, I think I thought I'd sound like a prick. What I, I do read essays. When I said I read essays, I'm often reading science nerdy books. Right. Okay. Science nerdy books are basically essay collections. Mm-hmm. What what I found was that the the in a funny way ebooks helped me with that, and I I I have no idea why. I think it might be portability because the books I'm talking about are usually big, yeah, fucking yeah. and and so I could have the thing anywhere. Um, but I I definitely found I was able to focus in a way that I found. Harder, maybe I think it was the hardback. Sorry, this is so banal, but anyway, (laughs) you have to you have to carve out a moment to read a hardback book. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's a lot easier just to quickly get into something, and you can you can be in that moment a lot faster. I think you can read it in your bed easier, certainly. (laughs) In the bath, no, no worry about dropping it. Like anywhere, like in an airport. Yeah, yeah. while you're waiting for someone at the fancy restaurant that we've <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm very happy to say that that is the question which uh, does ah. does count, and you give the correct answer. So, well, are you joking? Is that is that? Yeah, that is. Yeah, you've passed the test. <laughs> One of the only few people who have passed. This. I'm very happy. It is, yeah. But so, can you tell me what what's the failure? Is it pretentiousness? Is it ludditism? Like, what is it? I think a lot of people. A lot of people talk about the smell of a book, which makes me think they're a bit weird. He's doing this, you see, that, that like Tarek is very much the e-book <laughs> advocate and I, I quite like a real book. So he's just, he's just it's delighted that he said there, that. I think you enjoy reading actual books. No, I, I think there is, I, get, I totally get that. There's something nice about the physical book. and But for me, I think the plus points of an e-book, the portability, the instantly buying another book straight away without having to leave your bed. You know, that that kind of stuff I do I do like that stuff a lot. Yeah, yeah, I get it. 
Um, well, I'm glad I got the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was a great chat. Really, really enjoyed that. Yeah, and really interesting what you were saying about annihilation. That kind of reading a book and then not reading it again to adapt it and adapting the feeling or the memory of. It. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it is. It's if you've not seen Annihilation, it's a, it's a, it's worth seeing. But at the same time, I can see why some people thought it wouldn't appeal to a large audience, only mm. because it is a very, it's not a mainstream story no, you know no it's a great film i, I really but, liked it yeah yeah, yeah. and I, I i really enjoyed it and um i will stand by the fact that the shouting bear is one of the scariest things like i've seen in films for a long yeah. time and like i said to alex i can't remember I don't, I don't think that's in the book but it might be but it, it it totally elicited the same feelings in me watching the film and reading the book even though they're totally different things yeah. you know and what he was saying about what is reading and you know someone can write a story but they can't tell you how to read it and how it'll make you feel kind of a thing you know daniel abram was saying a bit of the same thing in in the last episode that we had of last season that the the relationship the reader has with what you've written is a different thing entirely that you don't have much control over i think yeah yeah no, it's so true, and I'm and from what we're saying about his next project, that sounds very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, very early stages, etc. But I'm very excited to see what happens with that. Yeah, yeah, the the horror movie set. Yeah, set in Gloucestershire. Yeah, I mean, here's someone who, you know, you look at his catalogue; it's quite eclectic in terms of you know, you've got zombie movie, sci-fi, comic book, um, mm-hmm. and, and but I think there's a theme throughout them all of. Um, of big concepts, you know, big important concepts, whether it's a viral outbreak or the sun exploding or crime or whatever, and and the and and there's a thoughtfulness to always. Oh, there is. He's one of the most thoughtful writer directors there mm-hmm. is. I think you know something like Dave's as well as exploring oh, so yeah. much. And, and, and you're right; it's got it's more recent stuff. It's more and more thoughtful. Yeah. I think as time goes on. Um, so yeah. The, He's he's sort of he's the sort of creator that you think when you hear. I know he doesn't like taking a film by credit, you know, yeah. which is you know what he said makes a lot of sense. A lot of people make these things, so to for oh, the director yeah. to put their name on it, I can see what he's saying. But at the same time, when you hear that he's working on a project, it's something that I'm immediately interested in. I don't yeah. know what it's going to be about. I don't know if it'll click entirely with me, but it's something that you want to want to see because you know he'll have put everything into it um, yeah yeah totally agree and and i think that is the difference between yes there's a lot of people who work in a film but it is at the end of the day it's his kind of vision mm-hmm. that, that runs through the, you know in the dna of the movie and that is exactly as you say what makes it exciting um so really thanks so much to alex for taking the time to to record that we really enjoyed it as as i think you can tell from from our <laughs> chat here um and uh we can't wait to see this new film that he's got coming out. And if you haven't seen Dave's, I think it is still on iPlayer in I the think UK. It is, yeah. So I, I would definitely, it's, definitely it's, give that a watch. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And we've got another exciting guest next week, Marco. We do indeed. Would you like to tell them? We are chatting to Matt Ruff next week, who is uh, an American author who's written 
uh, a number of novels and comics, uh, mm-hmm. The Mirage, and perhaps most famously Lovecraft Country, yeah, which was recently made into a TV show on HBO. Yeah, that's right. It's on been on Sky, I think, in the UK mm-hmm. or now TV. But um, yeah, and another really interesting chat because he's a author that sort of has has uh, trodden his own path really in terms of of what he wants to write and the style that he writes it. He's sort of he's written some fantasy books, but they're not what you would maybe call conventional fantasy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and even Lovecraft Country as a book is divided into these little episodes, almost, almost short story, type yeah, episode type things. Yeah, it's like a sort of yeah an anthology almost, but but yeah. it, there's an overall connecting uh, story as well. Um, so again, it's a really great chat. So I hope you tune in for that one. Um, before we go, those of you that listen all the time will know that I always. Uh, like to ask if you enjoyed the episode please do give us a rating and if possible a review on your favorite podcast app uh, because it really helps us climb the rankings and if we climb the rankings we can continue to get great guests on the podcast and if anyone has any questions or comments they would like to send us they can of course get in touch by email which is uh, podcast at rightgear.co.uk or twitter which is at right underscore gear yeah um, and otherwise uh, we hope you have a great week and uh, we'll be back next week chatting to Matt see you then